Very simple title today, A Samaritan, a Eunuch, and a Pharisee, and then you can fill in the blank. Walked into a bar, I don't know, I don't, it's not really a joke. But the next section of our story in Acts takes place in chapters 8 and chapters 9, and there's three consecutive stories that lead up to a very popular, well-known guy by the name of Paul. He's known as Saul, he's later known as Paul. He ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament, so he's a very significant character. But the entire storyline leading up to that has these little characters, a Samaritan, a guy by the name of Simon, and then an Ethiopian eunuch. And you're like, what is really all this about? So I'd like to take a little bit of a look at what these stories may mean for us. And again, this entire series on Acts is to try to get us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, or those of us who are maybe even interested or curious about the Christian movement, Christianity, whatever that might mean, getting us regrounded in the original story to help reshape and reform how we express our faith even to this day. And today I'm hoping will actually be a big push and a big challenge for some of the ideas and the concepts that we might have regarding our faith and what Christianity looks like, especially as communicated in the public arena. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a lot of change and development going on. It's sometimes hard for us because we get short-sighted about a variety of different things, but there have been some massive, significant, huge cultural, technological, anthropological shifts and changes that have happened in the world. This is just one of them. The iPhone, of course, 10th anniversary is coming out, so this is like a big deal. But that thing that we hold to be fairly ubiquitous amongst us, like, have you ever said this, like, what did I ever do before my iPhone, or what did I ever do before my Samsung, or whatever, recognize that you didn't have this 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, and for, for those of you who, who remember, you had the little brick Motorola thing with the antenna that stuck up that, you know, you only got like 100 minutes per month at 50 cents a minute, you know, we, we've come a long way since the telephone, and massive shifts and changes have happened. Here's another one. Model 3 is supposed to be uh, coming out. This is big news. Tesla has announced they did a big push uh, several years ago about this, and now they're saying that production is lying and the first ones are going to be delivering soon. But it wasn't not terribly long ago, barely 100 years ago, where Henry Ford was fashioning the Model T. And you could have it was, it was amazing push-forward technology. Had this uh, combustible engine. They could mass-produce it. You could have any color you wanted as long as you liked black. It was an incredible machine, and it changed everything. So much so that they didn't even know what to call it. They didn't call it a car. They called it a horseless carriage. That's how radical of a shift the brain was like. I don't even know what to call this thing. I just know that it's getting me from point A to point B, and it doesn't have a horse. So you're naming it according to the thing that it is not. I'm sorry, it's another Apple thing. The iMac Pro, of course, is coming out. All this computing power. And I remember my very first computer having one of these things in it. it, Does anybody, some of you in this definitely know what this is. Some of you younger people have no idea what this is. But that was huge in my day. This is like you could take, you could take data with you. And on a little, it was fly, it was actually floppy. It was actually floppy. You could take it with you. And then, of course, our world is shifting and changing in radical, very significant ways. 
and old industries are going away and new ones. And no matter what politicians may say or may do, this is a very significant issue, and people on their own, in fact, the city of Palo Alto, we have some friends who are part of the Palo Alto Renewable Energy Initiative, and they are working very, very hard to ensure that Palo Alto actually gets to carbon zero. So this major shift is happening. And every single time these shifts happen, what is ultimately going on in our world and in our mind? And by the way, this is just a, a couple examples of hundreds, if not thousands, of things that are going on in our world that are shifting us. It feels as if you are actually moving. You're moving from an old world to a new world. An old world where you thought you knew how things were supposed to work. An old world in which everything made sense according to the ways in which you explained the world. Your worldview about heaven, about hell, about God, about science, about technology. All of that stuff worked in that old world. But with the development and the changes and the shifts and all of these advancements that are happening, we are now finding ourselves in a completely new world. And here's what's fascinating. The ways in which one used to think in that old world don't work anymore in the new world. There was once a time when advertisers with products talked about using what they called ER words. And during the industrial age, things got better, faster, safer. Your clothes got cleaner and whiter. So that's how they advertised all of these products. And something happened very, very quickly with the emergence of technologies is that you don't use ER words anymore because every product does the same thing, essentially. So in order to communicate, in order to sell, in order to be a part of this capitalistic framework, in order to market your product well, you don't use ER words anymore. You have to start thinking about what somebody is experiencing. You start changing somebody's identity. This is no longer just a cup of coffee. It's a social lubricant by which we can make deep, passionate connections within the context of a Starbucks. And in fact, Starbucks even talked about creating what they called third spaces. Not home, not work, but a third space. And as you moved into this whole new world... The old way of thinking, hey, this product is better, smarter, faster, cleaner, doesn't work anymore in the new world. And what essentially happens with all those technologies, with all those products, and with our humanity, even how we see ourselves, we're going through a paradigm shift. We've talked about paradigm shifts before. We've showed this picture before. Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? It all depends on how you look at it, and there's lots of different examples of how this could work. What I'd like to share with you today, even though while paradigm shifts have a way of thinking, it's fundamentally a shift in your worldview, a shift in your attitude, a shift in your thinking, all this stuff. What I'd like to focus on today, regarding these stories in the book of Acts, is that paradigm shifts also mean a loss of something also mean that you have to get rid of things in order for your life to be sustainable in this new world. In order for something new to happen, something old actually has to go away. Whether that's thinking, whether that's a theology, whether that's a behavior, whether that's an attitude, whether that's a habit that you have, a paradigm shift fundamentally means 
in order for something new to take place, something old has to go away. These are some of the ways in which people started thinking about these paradigms. This is not just a better phone when they came out with the smartphone. It's a completely and entirely different kind of device altogether. Don't think anymore just about phone calls. That kind of thinking has to go away in order for new kinds of thinking and new kinds of products to take place. For those of you who know Elon Musk's uh, mission statement for Tesla, it's not about creating electric cars. Very, very clear. The mission of Tesla is accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy. This isn't about transportation. That thinking has to go away in order for some new paradigm to take place. What is that new paradigm? Sustainable energy. And regarding maps, there's some fascinating uh, discussion around cartography. Those people who create maps used to be in the old world, especially for people like Christopher Columbus and Amerigo Vespucci and all these people who traveled across the oceans to discover new lands. Amerigo, by the way, the name of that guy ultimately became the name of our uh, continent, the Americas. Maps used to be created to explore and to conquer. That was the thinking. That was the mindset. We are creating a map so that we can explore and then conquer it, so that we can own it and have power over that. But new people who are starting to do maps and geography, they actually don't talk about exploring and conquering anymore. They talk about childhood asthma and criminal justice reform just by understanding the landscape and the geography and how cities and populations are spread throughout. It's really, really fascinating to listen to them because they're not thinking about old world technologies anymore. They're thinking about how does this new way of thinking change the world, new way of drawing maps. Paradigm shifts are ultimately about old world versus new world. And if you are part of the Christian tradition or if you're part of any faith tradition, there is the same idea, which is the old creation and a new creation, which comes right into the Jesus story. And what I'm going to suggest to you today, which is why we're in Acts chapter 8, is that that old creation and new creation also means that there were old ways of living and being, and those must go away in order for new ways of living and being to emerge. This is just a fundamental principle for how paradigms, movement, progress is made. For something new to come, something old must go away. And let me tell you something. This is really, really hard for us because it's scary. It's disruptive. It's challenging. It's, it's sometimes just, I just don't want to. I don't want to change. And... Sometimes that's how we perpetuate old ways. That's my setup. Here's the story. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Samaria, by the way, is this portion of Israel that's in the north. Here's a little bit of a glimpse of where that location is in the northern portion of Israel. Remember, in the story, there were some Israelites who were taken away. They went away to a foreign land, and they kind of learned foreign customs, foreign ideas. 
But then they came back to some people that stayed there, and they intermingled with the people. They intermarried, which was a big no-no according to the Jewish way of thinking. And so those Samaritans took on an identity that was very, very different from the pure Jews that had come back, that come back from exile. And so they were really hated. They were half-breeds. They were called all sorts of names. They were really demeaned. And so for Philip uh, to go to Samaria is to go to the place that you don't want to go to. It's to go to people that you don't like. It's to go to people that are kind of like you, that are just close enough to you, but yet they have kind of compromised or they've done something else that causes you to really be disgusted with them and by them. For those of you who have ever had conversations or arguments with people of different faiths, my guess is that the most contentious, the most argumentative, the most difficult, the most um, vitriolic conversations you've had have not been with people of other religions. It's going to be with people who are of the same faith as you, who are a little concerned about where you're going, how you're thinking, what kind of changes you're doing. It's just too close. That's the Samaritans. They, they are, by the way, they're still alive. You can go there and see the celebrations and how they keep some of the feasts and the festivals and all those traditions. It's really, really fascinating. It's kind of like going back in time to see what they're doing. So Philip goes to these people, The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in the city. So Philip is spreading the gospel and doing something amazing. But now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. This guy, Simon, uh, has a nickname named Magus, which kind of, uh, in plural, actually means magi, magician. It's where we get our word magic and magician from. He's performing all these signs. And he has the ear of the people. He's done some pretty spectacular things. But we start to get a little bit of clue as to how he is amazing the people. It may not be as pure of a motive as it may be. Part of the reason why this depiction, even though it doesn't say so in the text, why this depiction has demons on the side is because the early Christians believed that this guy, Simon, which is where we get our word simony, by the way, to practice those dark magical arts, was influenced by demons, did not have a great reputation. He comes to Philip, in short, I'm summing up some of the text, and he says, listen, I like what you're doing. You're amazing these people. Did you know that I used to amaze these people? You're doing a pretty good job amazing these people. Tell you what, I've got a little something here, a little bit under the table. Why don't you take some of my money and you give me something of what you have so that I too can do what you're doing? He's trying to buy, purchase. He's a good entrepreneur maybe. He wants to expand. He wants to acquire a new business that is in the same area. He wants to do that, but he's trying to buy the power of the Spirit of God that he sees in this person, Philip. And Philip says, may your money die with you. How dare you do this? Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. What a great phrase, the gall of wickedness. How dare you think you can buy this wonderful thing that is happening in your land? Now, that is a pretty harsh word. But notice what Simon does here. He answers, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. In some ways, Simon recognizes what's going on. And while the gospel is definitely moving forward, this good news about Jesus is enveloping a whole bunch of people as it does with this particular person in Samaria, the land of the hated half-breeds, a gentleman says, please pray that that doesn't happen to me. In other words, Simon, you need to repent. And this prayer, this act towards Philip, is in some ways his first step of saying, I may have gotten this wrong. The way that I've thought about this good news moving forward, that way of thinking, that attitude, might have to go away. And I might have to start thinking about a new way. That's Samaria. Simon. After this, then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south, toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. What a great story. Now, who is this? We actually have documentation of the queens of the Ethiopians, of a land down south of Egypt that was at that time called Nubia. And Candace is a little bit of a misnomer. It's not really a name. It's actually a title, which means queen of the Ethiopians. And we know the name Amantiteri, I think, if I'm saying that right. We know the name of the queen at that particular time. So here we have a eunuch who is in the service of this particular queen. And who are these queens? There's this phenomenal story of the very beginning of the queens of Ethiopia. You might know of a guy by the name of Alexander the Great. He stands up on a hill, he looks to the left, looks to the right, and he says, all of this are mine. And he begins to conquer all the world. He starts with Macedonia, moves to Turkey, then he goes into Israel, then he heads down to Samaria, and all, all of the he just conquers everything. He bulldozes over the entire world. Then he comes to the northern shore of Africa and takes over all that. And then he begins to move south. And in 332, there's this story that is told that he comes to Nubia, the, this particular land, which was known as Ethiopia, Nubia at that time. And he meets up with the queen who had heard about Alexander's conquest. I love this story. She gathers her troops, dresses them all up in their armor, and goes out to meet Alexander riding on an armed elephant. And as the story goes, Alexander, the great, the conqueror, looks, takes one look at this armed woman, turns around and says, I think I'll stick on the northern part of Africa. So I love that story because here's somebody powerful, somebody who owns the space, owns power in that location. And the eunuch who's in service of this woman is somebody who has ultimately been castrated. Now, what is a eunuch? A eunuch is somebody who has been castrated. That's 
the technical biological term for it. I'm sorry to be a little bit earthy to this tonight. But why did they do that? There's several reasons for that. One is to pacify and calm the person so that they could be a, a good servant to the aristocracy, to the queen or to the queen, and so that they could be a dedicated and reliable servant. And there's lots of different scholastic discussion. Did somebody castrate themselves, or was it forced upon them very early on so that they didn't have time for hormonal changes and all that stuff? Regardless, what we know about this person is that this eunuch was in service of this queen, who we know as a result of some of these stories was extremely powerful. And as a result of being a eunuch, was definitely a dedicated and reliable servant to that queen. So the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Samaria to a, somebody who's practicing magic and now moves to somebody who shows up in Jerusalem reading the prophet Isaiah who's in service of another foreign power. The eunuch says, the eunuch asked Philip, about whom may I ask you does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? He was reading the prophet Isaiah, remember. Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Wait a second, wait a second. Baptism is ultimately the symbol of somebody whose life has been regenerated. Your old life has gone away. And your new life has emerged in service of someone else in the name of the person that you've baptized. Here is somebody as a eunuch who is in service of the queen coming forth and saying, what is to prevent me from being baptized after hearing this good news? He commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. Meaning... He shifts and changes, and he says, my dedication now is to this movement, to the good news about Jesus. Rather than being a dedicated and faithful servant to the queen, I am now a dedicated and faithful servant to this Jesus. An old way of behaving is exchanged, is let go for a new way of behaving. Story number three. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing murderous threats, uh, breathing, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way, by the way, is that phrase to mean this early Christian movement. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So now we come to a third character in this series. Somebody who is, if you ever, ever ran into somebody who was dedicated, religious, devout, observant, knew his Bible front to back, 
prayed every single day, never missed a quiet time, had his name Saul embossed on his leather-bound Old Testament Bible, carried it around with him, wore a big cross around his neck, had bumper stickers on his chariot, I love Jesus. Whatever it is, if there was anybody who really, really, really was dedicated, it's this guy, Saul, Paul, Saul. And yet, something had to happen to him in which an old way of thinking about his faith had to go away in order for a new way to emerge. His behavior, his persecution, what I would call perhaps even his fundamentalism, needed to go away because the way of Jesus came along and challenged him and offered him a completely new way of thinking. So he is helped up, blind, goes into the city, meets this guy by the name of Ananias, who, by the way, doesn't want to see him at all. Ananias is like, do you know who that is, God? I, don't, I do not want to host that guy. It's going to be death for me. And ultimately, he goes into this house, hosts him, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Something like scales fell. He started to see in a completely different way. My friends, I'm suggesting to you that these three stories, sometimes they're studied individually. I'm cramming them all together because I think what is happening in this passage is as the movement is going forward, you've already heard and we've already talked about how the gospel is for everybody. It's for everybody. It's for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. It's for the Samaritan. It's for the Greek. It's for the Roman. It's for, for the barbarian. There are no boundaries when it comes to who the gospel is for. This good news about Jesus, this good life, this whole new resurrected way of living, the kingdom of God, it's for everybody. But as we move into these stories, the magician, the servant, and the fundamentalist, these stories highlight the other side of the coin, which is as it goes out to everybody, the people to whom it comes are now forced with a decision. My old way of thinking and behaving has to change, has to go away. Simon the magician, I can buy this. I can purchase my way through. I can control this. All of that has to go away. And he's ultimately rebuked and he repents or begins the first step towards repentance. The servant who is in service of the queen, who is in service of a high power, ultimately recognizes that his service is not to the queen, but is in service to someone else. He has to think differently about his identity. He gets explained the scriptures, and then he is baptized. And the fundamentalist, who ultimately believed that he was doing God's will, who ultimately believed that he was doing exactly what his faith and his religion was teaching him to do, he had to completely upend all of that. And through an experience, through Jesus appearing to him, he had to have something like scales fall from his eyes so that he could see in a completely different way. What do these three leave behind? This is some of my questions. What are their paradigm shifts? These stories are not just here to talk about how, oh, that's wonderful, Samaritans are allowed in. Oh, that's wonderful, uh, Ethiopian eunuchs are allowed in. Oh, that's wonderful, religious fanatics are allowed in. 
This is also about how, if they are in, and if they are following, something old has got to go. And what is it that they have to leave behind? I'm going to suggest to you, my friends, and this is really apropos for us, it's really appropriate for us, because all of us are moving into a new world. We're moving into new life. We're moving into a new way of being. And as we do, let's celebrate what God is doing and what our faith is doing to us, challenging us, redeeming us. But there are some behaviors that need to be left behind in order for this new life to live. There are some commitments, some key commitments that we have made that maybe need to be corrected. And there are some attitudes and there are some ideas that need to be forsaken if this new way of living into this new world is going to thrive and going to come alive, there are some old things that need to go away. And I would encourage you to consider, what is it in your life? What is it within our faith tradition? What is it within the church, quote, unquote, the church, that is actually competing with the way of Jesus truly being lived out. My friends, this is a really hard question. But we're moving into a new world, and I don't think any of us, any of us have the luxury of not asking this question anymore. What is competing? What is it that we are still holding on to that maybe we need to let go of to change to even forsake in order for the way of Jesus to truly live. For those of you who have been around Spark, you already know that we have had significant conversations around a lot of significant topics. We've talked about politics. We've talked about sexuality. We are in the midst of talking about race. And we will continue to have these conversations because, and what I love about our church and what I love about all of you is that you are willing to do this. Yes, this gospel, this good news, this is an amazing way to live. But that means old ways of thinking about our behavior in this world, our commitments to certain ideas or ideologies. Some people within the Christian faith have made promises, binds, ties, commitments to socio-political identities that may need to go away in order for the way of Jesus to live. And then there are some fundamental things about theology and ideas that we have inherited that have been passed down to us, that we still hold on to, that we still hold, that this is the truth. And maybe just like Paul, Saul, some of those things also need to go away. There's a saying by Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. One of the ways of understanding this is that the gates in Jerusalem look like this. You can see the large gate by which people pass. But then there's this smaller gate that is open just to let Uh, rather than during the uh, big times, just to let people pass through, which is often called the eye of the needle. 
Now, camels are known in the ancient world as ships of the desert. Think cargo ships, barges that dock in Oakland all the time carrying all of that load. Those are camels of the ancient world. But for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, what does it have to do? It has to actually unload all that it has been carrying. And this, in some ways, forms a picture, a parable, a metaphor that many of us have been carrying around heavy loads, religious, ideological, behavioral, commitments. And sometimes, in order for us to enter into the kingdom of God, to enter into the fullness of what God has intended for us and for our church and for our life, we have to unload a bunch of stuff. We have to be freed from the weight and the burden of all of that. Uh, Peter Drucker, in Peter Drucker's terms, he's uh, sometimes known as the father of modern management. If you want something new, you have to stop doing something old. In other words, if you want to say yes to Jesus, sometimes you have to say no to a bunch of other things. And last, in John chapter 12, 24, I think this falls right into the lines of the teachings of Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Unless this thing, maybe that we've been carrying around, if we keep holding on to it, is not going to bear the kind of fruit that we need it to bear. It's got to die. It's got to go away. It's got to get in the ground and be buried. So my friends, my question is, ultimately, what needs to die? What needs to go away as we move from this old world into this new world? Whether that's an old faith into a new faith, whether that's an old world of technology into a new world of technology, as an old kind of church into a new kind of church, some things are going to have to go away. Some things are just going to have to die. Some things that we've been holding on to for so long, and I'm not suggesting that these are them, but this is why we exist, is to ask piercing questions about what really ultimately fundamentally is the way of Jesus that needs to live and thrive. And as, as the world has gone on, I've become a stronger believer, committed believer in the way of Jesus, but not necessarily in the faith that I have inherited because there are some things that I'm like, I'm not quite so sure that is exactly what Jesus was talking about. And maybe, I'm not saying is, but maybe there are some of these things that just simply need to go away in order for the new way of living into the Jesus way, into this world, for that to live. And I would suggest to you that this is actually nothing new. This is going to be the paradoxical catch-22 part of the message. This is something that our tradition has been doing ever since the very beginning, starting with Simon the Samaritan magician, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Saul, who had all three of them had to shift and to change a whole bunch of things and get rid of some stuff in order for a new way to live. Our tradition, the Jesus tradition, 
is exactly one of paradigm shifts, of some old things going away so that some new things can live. And that's why I think those stories are in there, to show that this movement is going to challenge us to think and to process in completely new ways, in ways that I think are going to be very difficult for some of us to think about. That's why it's called a paradigm shift, because our brains aren't quite ready to think about it. But if we can at least hold on to our story, this is why we're going through Acts. If we can hold on to that story and pay attention to what those people did, oh, they made changes, they made shifts, they let go of some old things in order for some new things to live. If we can simply start there and accept that they did that, then maybe that will posture our hearts in a way that will prepare us for us to do the same thing when called, when needed, into this new world. So let me pause for just a few moments before I close us. That's my, that's my proposition, my offering to you all. Does anybody have any questions, pushbacks, comments, piercing critiques, or maybe even some suggestions or thoughts as to some things that are in tension right now? Or maybe you just need a moment to think about your own personal life and journey, your own movement, and something is keeping you from moving forward, taking a step forward, finding the fullness of that new life. And there's an attitude, a behavior, something that you need to get rid of. So the question is, so if there are more things that I need to get rid of or more things I need to change or more, more areas in which I need to go, how do I discover those, especially after some long years of doing this, right? So there's a couple responses that I see, at least through the, the biblical narrative that we have. Number one, it's never done alone. It's always done with. That's why we're a church. That's why we're a community. That's why, um, that's why the pastors at this church don't have all the answers. That's why we listen deeply to what's going on in the community. That's why we're constantly trying to solicit feedback and hearing and listening. And, um, so, so it's always done in community. So that's number one. We get to decide as a community what, what, what works, what doesn't work. I remember it was several years ago when the um, California Supreme Court and then the federal Supreme Court started making their decisions about um, same-sex marriage. And I remember a, a season and a period where there was a lot of, lot of discussion for us as a church. And in conversation with everybody in our church um, for whom this issue is real, um, they, everyone was invited in to participate, um, and we even had them share and that informed us. That greatly informed the journey. And that's the same thing now with the race conversation. I'm, I'm so upset that I missed the last three um, because I've just been hearing wonderful things that are happening. So the community is so, so key and so central. So that's my first thought. The second thought that I see comes from a Jewish tradition, which is very different from a Christian tradition. A Christian tradition says... You know that you know that you know. In fact, I, I think I've shared before that I grew up under uh, listening to a guy on the radio say, you know that you know that you know. And Christianity has always been about this certainty. It's always been about this solidification of knowledge. In a Jewish perspective, um, there's this sense that you never own your knowledge. That in a Christian sense, 
if God is huge, if God is big, if faith is just this thing that is out there, God is so big, I'm just never, ever, ever going to learn everything I need to know, and I'm always going to fall short. It's a completely different attitude on the Jewish side. No, God is huge, massive, amazing, astounding, so that we will be able to learn something new about God every single day for the rest of our lives. It's the joy of discovery. It's the joy of change. It's the joy of growth and maturity every single day till your dying breath. And uh, that is really attractive to me because at what particular point in my life will I say, I, this is it, I got it, boom, nailed it, thank you very much. Um, but from the Jewish perspective, which, and Jesus was Jewish, no, you just keep going, you keep pushing, and you keep plowing through, and then you start to open up and discover whole new worlds that were that you had been blind to before, which is why there's a paradigm shift. So two, two responses, community and the joy of discovery every single day. And I hope that we get to build a culture and a community where that is the case. You get to discover something new every single day for the rest of your life. It never stops. And there is joy in that discovery. Is the giving up of perceived need of material things implied in what I was talking about? Absolutely. This is a message for another time. I think it's really, really hard to read Jesus. Really hard. And not see economic implications. And I really, like, I really, to to be honest with you, I don't want to say that. But if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, there are some economic implications for how life is lived out. Because and that the reason why that's hard is because we live in America where materialism and capitalism and individual, I mean, this is a part of who we are. And part of the reason why I shared this is because, well, first of all, it's been churning in my own heart, in my own reading and studying and thinking and processing and spiritual growth. And second, um, I, I can't not see it. It's like once you, you know, beware, caution, what you're about to see, you cannot unsee. Have you ever, you know, those videos that are sometimes on YouTube? Um, once you see this, there's something about this process that I can't unsee. Do you guys know the story of uh, Joseph and Mary? Well, they find out they're pregnant, and they go to the temple, and they offer a sacrifice like they're supposed to do. Does anybody remember the sacrifice? They take two doves. Why do they to- take two doves? Because they're poor. It says very explicitly in Deuteronomy um, that if you're rich, you can do a sheep or a goat, but if you're poor, you, you do the lesser. It, it is woe, the economics... Economics is woven throughout the gospel. Now, um, with that said, there's a book on my shelf by Craig Blomberg, and I love the title, Neither Poverty Nor Riches. That's his title. And it gives you a little bit of summation. There are ways in which Christians have exemplified their understanding of Jesus through what is known as asceticism, the complete renunciation of anything, anything material. Uh, in fact, it is um, mythologically understood that St. Francis of Assisi used to put dirt and throw it in his food because he didn't want to enjoy too much. There was like, like that particular side. But then there's the, obviously the other, the other side, where Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 8 is being supported by a bunch of women, one of them named Joanna, the wife of Chutza, who is the uh, manager of Herod's household. This guy is rich. And his wife is supporting Jesus' ministry. So, it takes thoughtful consideration to say what is the appropriate way of Jesus economically. 
because I don't think there is a right answer. There isn't a number that you can tell me. Say, well, if you make this much, then you're in the way of Jesus. And if you make that much, you know, pre-tax, then you're not in the way of Jesus. That's not the, the answer. The answer is um, economics is a factor, but how that's lived out and how that's played out is not as simple because you see both in, in the movement. Okay, God. I don't know what you're going to do with us or with this or with the future of your movement, but I'm on board. So help us figure this out. That's my prayer. Amen.